Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to CBS News Roundup ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup, brought to you by Viking. Exploring the world in comfort. Here's correspondent Allison Keyes. Coming up, a scathing Justice Department report in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd finds a pattern of discrimination in Minneapolis. There were instances like that that were being reported by the community long before that. A guilty verdict for the gunman who killed 11 people at a Pittsburgh synagogue. The verdict here demonstrates a level of accountability that hopefully will make people feel just a little bit better. In the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, a look at the Juneteenth holiday amid moves to restrict the teaching of black history. This repression of the history of slavery, um, African-American history, is a return to the 1950s. I'm Allison Keys in Washington. Friday morning, the Justice Department said its two-year civil rights investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department after the killing of George Floyd found a pattern of discrimination against blacks and Native Americans and of violating constitutional rights. Attorney General Merrick Garland spoke to reporters. Our review found numerous incidents in which MPD officers responded to a person's statement that they could not breathe with the version of, you can breathe, you're talking right now. We also found that MPD officers failed to intervene to prevent unreasonable use of force by other officers. As I told George Floyd's family, his death has had an irrevocable impact on the Minneapolis community, on our country. CBS's Jeff Begates has been covering this since the May 25th, 2020 police killing of George Floyd and has more. This was a scathing report by the Department of Justice. It found among... Uh, it's so-called highlights that the Minneapolis Police Department uses excessive force, including unjustified deadly force and other types of force, especially as it relates to dealing with Black people and Native American people in its enforcement activities. And so the, the Minneapolis Police Department, according to the Department of Justice, uh, discriminates also against people with mental health issues when it's responding to calls. So the Department of Justice investigation found all sorts of problems within this department, including that officers who violated procedures were not uh, being disciplined. And, and that is similar to what the Department of Justice has found in other uh, reports of police departments across the country uh, where there have been issues in 2014, 2015. There was a similar report on what was happening in Ferguson, Missouri, after 
and Michael Brown were shot and it found similar issues in that police department. And so this was a scathing report by the Department of Justice. Okay, Jeff, I know you've been covering this since the beginning. What have people in the community there been saying? The people I talk to in the community, they're not surprised by the revelations in this report. It's, in their view, it's something that they have seen, something that they have lived. And they're wondering if it will indeed bring change. While the police department here insists that it is on the road to change, there are people in the community who doubt Uh, how sincere they are about making changes within the police department. CBS's Jeff Pegues. In Pittsburgh, Friday, a jury handed down a guilty verdict on all 63 counts for the man accused of fatally shooting 11 people at the Tree of Life Synagogue in October 2018. It was the deadliest attack on Jews in U.S. history. KDKA reporter Shelby Sasassi. After about five hours of deliberation between Thursday afternoon and Friday morning, the jury found Robert Bowers guilty on all 63 charges, including several hate crimes in the 2018 synagogue massacre. The entire verdict taking about 10 minutes to read. Now, the true unknown of this case lies ahead. Will the same jury give Bowers life in prison or the death penalty? The sentencing phase of the case could begin as early as Monday, June 26th, but it's possible there will be a delay as both sides prepare. Once it does begin, it's expected to last about six weeks. Shelby Cassassi for CBS News, Pittsburgh. But there's been a wave of anti-Semitism in the nation, and Oren Siegel at the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism says... While a verdict is important, I'm not so sure how much it will play out in terms of reducing the level of anti-Semitism. Uh, what motivates anti-Semitism in this country, the groups, the narratives, the influencers, the social media is much broader than any one trial or any one verdict. There are deep concerns in the nation as a major government agency and a raft of private institutions have been caught up in a ransomware attack. Officials believe a Russia-based cyber criminal gang known as CLOP is likely behind the breach. Since last month, the extortion group gained access to sensitive and personal information through a file-sharing app called MoveIt. This MoveIt file transfer app is widely used because it makes securing data so convenient. It makes it easy to move data in a way that's encrypted. Some American targets include the Energy Department, plus Johns Hopkins affiliated hospitals in Maryland and Florida, Georgia's statewide university system, the Minnesota Department of Education, and overseas, Shell and British Airways were hit. Bob Gourley is the former chief technology officer for the Defense Intelligence Agency. What stands out in this attack? The adversaries have a chance to get two bites from the same apple, meaning first they can put ransomware on your computer and say, you can never use your data again unless you pay us money. But meanwhile, they have a copy of your data. So the next request comes. In this message, believed to be from the cyber criminals, the group warns that if a ransom is not paid, after seven days, all your data will start to be published, sometimes on the dark web, where foreign adversaries are looking to leverage the data. They've started releasing some of the data that was stolen as part of their work to extort these companies. Ann Newberger is the White House Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology. We strongly encourage anyone who is a user of this software to, of course, patch, lock down their systems. 
U.S. government officials told reporters there is no evidence the hackers are coordinating directly with the Russian government. And so far, they said there's no evidence. U.S. military and intelligence agencies have been impacted. Government whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg has died at the age of 92. Henry Kissinger called Daniel Ellsberg the most dangerous man in America in 1971. That was because Ellsberg, a one-time Defense Department strategist, leaked thousands of pages of top-secret documents about U.S. involvement in Vietnam to the press, documents that would become known as the Pentagon Papers. Ellsberg risked life in prison to stop a war he'd come to believe was unjust. How can you measure the jeopardy that I'm in to the penalty that has been paid already by 50,000 American families? Steve Kathan, CBS News. Coming up, a new tactic from the Federal Reserve. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. This week, the Federal Reserve paused its recent interest hikes after 10 straight increases to fight inflation. But the Fed signals that it's likely not done. The Federal Reserve's pause on interest rate hikes came with a warning from Chairman Jerome Powell. It may not last for long. Inflation has not really moved down. It has it has not uh, so far reacted much to our to our existing rate hikes, and so we're going to have to keep at it. Inflation has come down from its peak of 9% to 4%, but the Fed wants to get it to 2%. While the cost of electricity, eggs and meat, and gasoline went down in May, overall grocery prices were nearly 6% more expensive over last year. The prices of margarine, flour, and bread all up. We've just seen huge increases in core staples that we need to make our product. Bakery owner Jenna Huntsberger said the rising costs have taken a toll. We're holding steady, um, but we're not seeing a growth in our sales. And I do think that's because consumers are just tired of inflation and they're really being very cautious with their discretionary income. Over the course of 15 months and 10 straight interest rate hikes, the 30-year fixed mortgage rate has risen to nearly 7%. Credit card rates have soared to more than 20%. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. The question for anyone sitting at home is, will these interest rates come down fast enough so that I can borrow money when I want to at a more affordable rate? I think it's safe to assume that the cost of servicing a loan or getting a new loan is going to remain high for the foreseeable future. 
The Federal Reserve signaled that it could raise the interest rate at least two more times by the end of this year. Economists say that if there's a sharp increase in inflation in the coming weeks, one of those hikes could happen as early as July when the Fed holds its next meeting. Weijia Jiang, CBS News, the White House. A New York grand jury has indicted Daniel Penny over that subway chokehold death of Jordan Neely. The white man says he was defending himself and other passengers when he pinned the black man down last month. CBS's Elaine Quijano with the latest. Cell phone video shows Marine veteran Daniel Penny holding Jordan Neely in a chokehold. Prosecutors say that's what killed him. In a statement, attorneys for Neely's family called the indictment the right result for the wrong Penny committed. CBS News legal analyst Jessica Levinson. I think what the grand jury looked at in terms of the evidence is evidence that led them to believe a prosecutor could prove that Penny used unreasonable force. Were the actions justified given the potential threat to others on that train? Penny's lawyers said their client restrained Jordan Neely when Neely was threatening to kill subway riders. The three main threats that he repeated over and over was, I'm going to kill you, I'm prepared to go to jail for life, and I'm willing to die. Earlier this week, Penny attempted to defend his actions in a series of video statements. And then some people say that this is about race, which is absolutely ridiculous. Cell phone video shows that Penny held Neely in a chokehold for nearly three minutes. According to Neely's family attorneys, Mr. Penny should have let go before Jordan died. There is no excuse for choking anyone for that long. This case is really going to turn on should Penny have released the chokehold earlier. New York has a duty to retreat rule. And so what the jury will be looking at is whether or not Penny could have done less. If convicted of the second-degree manslaughter charge, he could face up to 15 years in prison. Elaine Quijano, CBS News, New York. There is outrage in some quarters after dozens of migrants, including eight children, were bused from Texas to Florida. Texas says border cities are overwhelmed. The governor of Texas does not seem to recognize the humanity of these individuals. Strong words from all over California after dozens of migrants were bused from Texas to Los Angeles with little warning. We know that these are migrants, that they're human beings, that they have gone through traumatic experiences and that they're seeking safe haven. Jorge Mario Cabrera works for Churla, the Coalition of Human Immigrant Rights of Los Angeles. They were brought in to assist when the migrants arrived by bus to Union Station and then taken to St. Anthony's Church in Chinatown. When a stranger comes to us seeking safe harbor, we open our arms and we provide them that. Let them have their day in court. All the migrants were then moved to safe, undisclosed locations or connected with family members here or in San Francisco and San Diego. And although it's not clear what they were told when they boarded a bus bound for L.A., we've heard they weren't given any food or water for 22 hours. Call it what it is, a political stunt that use people, human beings, cruelly, inhumanely as pawns. Attorney General Rob Bonta wants an investigation. We are investigating. Uh, the conditions upon which uh, the individuals were um, you know, boarded the bus, what they were told, what was represented to them, uh, whether there was any deception or fraud that could be the basis for illegal activity, either criminal or civil. Those living nearby the church had mixed opinions on the unexpected drop-off. I wanted to talk to the priest here, and uh, I was going to give him a, a check. I have a lot of compassion for him, I feel for him, but... 
Our country right now, we're not able to sustain so many people. But the truth is, migrants arrive in Los Angeles every day. So the city of Angels was far from unprepared. This was a political stunt to cause havoc, drama, media attention, and to simply stick it to supposedly sanctuary cities like Los Angeles. Did it work? No. You know what it did? Is it reminded us again how good Los Angelinos are to people. KCBS-TV's Joy Benedict. Bud Light has been knocked off of its perch as the top-selling beer in the U.S. since 2001 over a conservative boycott and an upstart competitor. What you've seen in terms of this very significant decline, it has been very surprising. That's Dwayne Stanford, editor and publisher of Beverage Digest. Sales of light beers had been on a slow decline for years, but had stabilized somewhat before Bud Light sent a commemorative can to transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney in April. This month, I celebrated my day 365 of womanhood, and Bud Light sent me possibly the best gift ever, a can with my face on it. That video from Mulvaney caused an uproar among many conservatives who vowed never to buy Bud Light again. But Stanford says Bud Light will continue to support LGBTQ causes and events. I don't know that you're going to see Anheuser-Busch over time completely back away from uh, these potential consumer groups. I think what they have to do is find a way to bridge the gap between the various constituencies that they're serving. And I think, frankly, they're going to be scrambling right now to to understand the best way to do that uh, because it's a volatile environment that they're operating in now when it comes to the political divide. Modelo is a Mexican brand that's owned by Anheuser-Busch InBev, the parent company of Bud Light. However, a company called Constellation Brands has been licensed to sell Modelo in the U.S. since 2013. Christopher Cruz, CBS News. Coming up, a new climate warning. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup, brought to you by Viking, exploring the world in comfort. Here's correspondent Allison Keyes. Pope Francis is back at the Vatican after being released from a hospital in Rome Friday morning. Crowds wished Pope Francis well as he left Rome's Gemelli Hospital with a big smile, days after an operation to fix a hernia. The Pope is well, his surgeon says. He's better than before. When reporters asked how he was feeling, the 86-year-old pontiff quipped, still alive, a joke he made just two months ago after being hospitalized for bronchitis. We're very glad to hear that uh, he's feeling better and he's coming home. Pope Francis waved from his fiat as he headed back to the Vatican. Stopping to pray at the famous St. Mary Major Basilica, where he often visits to give thanks. As he arrived home, Vatican aides announced Pope Francis will make his traditional Sunday appearance at a window overlooking St. Peter's Square. This sister says, I am happy. I pray the Lord will leave him with us for a long time because he's everyone's Pope. A sentiment shared by many around the world. Tina Kraus, CBS News. In Ukraine, a counteroffensive against Russia centered around the city of Bakhmut. First, Ukrainian artillery softens the target. This donated German howitzer fires on Russian positions. The crew shoots, reloads, and shoots again before moving to avoid returning fire. 
This soldier says, we didn't start the war, but we'll end it. After the artillery, the infantry moves in, winding through the thickets to avoid detection, but meets stiff resistance and a fierce gunfight breaks out. This battle took place on the outskirts of Bakhmut in the Donetsk region. Once known for sparkling wine, it's now infamous for the war's fiercest fighting and utter destruction. Drones keep an eye on the assault. Okay, switch on, stop mode. Operators on the ground direct the troops. Beginning with things, they're weak, but they're getting stronger, in my opinion. And uh, this two, three months will be very important for our independence. Urging continued support for Ukraine, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin visited NATO's headquarters. We've given Ukraine's forces important training and impressive capabilities. But war is fluid, dynamic, and unpredictable. Anxiously watching Ukraine's counteroffensive is Igor Kuzmenko. He worked for the Donetsk regional government, exiled since Russia took the area in 2014. Are you working with the government then to implement a plan for once the soldiers retake Donetsk to bring a government back into service? Talk. Yes, he told us, such a plan is being prepared right now for when the Ukrainian government returns to its legal territory. Are you in close contact with the military about them taking Donetsk? Right now, our work is humanitarian, Igor says, but we have departments directly in contact with the military. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is echoing what troops here are telling us, that this won't be an easy sprint. But he added that the United States will stand by Ukraine for as long as it takes. Ian Lee, CBS News, Dnipro, Ukraine. Now to Mexico, where an investigation is underway into the deaths of an American couple. She texted her dad and said, good night, love you, like she always does. And that's the last we heard from her. Abby Lutz's family last heard from her Monday night. She said it's the sickest she's ever been. According to her family, Lutz and her boyfriend, John Heathcote, spent Sunday night in a Baja California hospital where they were treated for dehydration. I was messaging Abby and she told me they thought they had food poisoning. Feeling better the next day, they went back to their hotel and hung out by the pool. On Tuesday night, first responders were called to the Hotel Rancho Pescadero. Hotel staff had reportedly found Lutz and Heathcote unresponsive in their room. According to the L.A. Times, Heathcote was on the shower floor. Local authorities say they'd been dead for at least 10 hours. I never expected this to happen. She was wonderful to be around. The Baja California Attorney General's office says the two died from inhaling some sort of toxic substance, possibly carbon monoxide. Most people, when they're starting to get exposed to CO uh, fumes, they don't realize what it is. Kevin Coffey is a former travel crimes detective for the LAPD. What happened in this case, they went to the ER, they didn't test their blood, they just sent them home. And that's the unfortunate part, right? In a statement to our Los Angeles CBS station, KCAL, the hotel said, we can confirm there was no evidence of violence related to this situation and we are not aware of any threat to guest safety or well-being. Their deaths are the latest in a series of deadly poisoning among tourists abroad. Last October, three friends traveling from the States were found dead in a rental apartment in Mexico City from carbon monoxide poisoning. And in May 2022, authorities in the Bahamas confirmed three Americans died at a resort. The cause? Carbon monoxide. Is this a thing? Is this something we need to worry about when traveling? I travel with a portable CO detector. 
and it's just like this is battery operated and this device will let me know if there's going to be CO gases coming into my room. Do you feel more comfortable when you travel having that with you? I do. It's just it's just an extra piece of peace of mind for me. Carter Evans, Los Angeles. A strong warning on climate change from the U.N. Secretary General, who says the world is hurtling towards disaster. Eyes wide open. We all heard climate crisis warnings about more intense storms, wildfires, and rising seas. And now the world is starting to see those results. So this week, the United Nations Chief Secretary General Antonio Guterres called out big oil, saying that they are betraying future generations, and he called for accelerated plans for energy transitions. I call on all fossil fuel companies to present credible, comprehensive, and detailed new transition plans. These plans must cover all activities up and down the value chain. That must include reducing emissions from production, processing, transmission, refining, distribution, and use. And they must establish clear near-term targets that chart the business transition to clean energy. Fossil fuel companies must also seize and desist influence peddling and legal threats designed to kneecap progress. The UN chief seemed frustrated at the lack of progress in transition from fossil fuels to clean energy and said countries should show up in the fall at a climate ambition summit during the UN's annual Leaders Week with their commitments for shifting to clean energy and what he called away from a product incompatible with human survival. Pamela Falk, CBS News at the United Nations. An update now on the tragic sinking of a boat filled with migrants off the coast of Greece. There have been arrests. More than 100 migrants pulled from the water are now in a camp in the Greek capital. Several hundred more are believed to have died when their boat capsized and sank in the Mediterranean off Greece early Wednesday. The vessel was sailing from Libya to Italy with as many as 750 passengers, UN officials say. Nine men from Egypt have been arrested on suspicion of people smuggling. Elaine Cobb, CBS News. Coming up in the Kaleidoscope with Alison Keyes segment, Juneteenth and the political climate. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keys segment, where every week we discuss issues including income inequality. Juneteenth is Monday. It's the second year it is being celebrated as a federal holiday. It is the day in 1865 that enslaved people finally learned that they had been freed more than two years after President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. But this comes amid a push by conservatives in at least 18 states, including Florida and Texas, restricting the way race, inequality, and slavery are taught in classrooms via bans on so-called critical race theory. CRT uses race as a sociological concept to understand the dynamics of society, but some are using the term to define any teaching that involves race. 
We asked English and Black Studies professor Stephanie Batiste at the University of California, Santa Barbara, to weigh in on the meaning of Juneteenth amid the controversy and for a little more background. In that moment, you know, the people who were emancipated would have had little power on their own to force slave owners to follow the law. And so Juneteenth is the celebration of uh, what's understood as the final um, liberation of African-American slaves after the Civil War. So let me ask you, this is now a federal holiday after a long, long battle for that. And, you know, people are holding everything from barbecues to history readings or whatever, but... There are some, and I think you are among those, that think this holiday is a really, really late federal step. Talk talk to me about why. Well, I have a colleague um, who's a, Sharon Tedega. She's the director of the Center for Black Studies Research. And she made a flyer recently that said, my ancestors were still slaves in 1776 on July 4th. I celebrate Juneteenth. And uh, one of the things that Juneteenth recognizes is the way in which this country and indeed much of the developed West uh, became um, who we are as nations um, based, you know, it's too limited to say the West because really we're talking about the entire world um, became uh, or moved into what we might call the modern era um, because of the labor of diasporic chattel slavery, um, race-based chattel slavery. And so recognizing the liberation um, of uh, African-American slaves in the United States is really a way of recognizing the founding, the structure for the founding of the nation, um, the structure for um, the building of cities and temples, <laughs> the uh, the foundation of the United States of America as the nation that we are um, relied on 400 years of slavery. And so in some ways, you know what? The Civil War ended in 1865. And this is 2023, 2021. We got the first holiday. We're talking about 150 years of um, misrecognition of the terms of freedom in the United States a nation that prides ourselves on being, you know, a beacon of freedom to the world still, you know, even in this current capitalist imperial time uh, where we um, have kind of extractive relationships to other countries and um, have government systems in other places, right? We understand ourselves really as um, uh, one of the upholders of democracy and freedom in the world, right? And so the great hypocrisy is that that uh, development um, of nationhood is, you know, produced by 400 years of slavery. So having said all of that, and I love mm -hmm. the beacon of democracy, what does mm -hmm. that mean in a nation where in the current climate, there are some states, including Florida, but not limited to Florida, and entities that are trying to limit the teaching of Black history, what does that mean both for young people that are coming up and not necessarily knowing who they are? And what does it mean for people that are grown and still don't necessarily know who they are, where they come from? You know, the conversation and what common knowledge is changes over time. 
And if you're born in an era when folks aren't talking about resistance movements or civil rights um, in a liberal, uh, excuse me, in a neoliberal era when, you know, um, all of your outcomes are your own making, are your own doing, are your own fault, are your own responsibility, um, then it's easy for generations of people um, to know, uh, not to know what the terms of our freedom are or have been in the United States. So I consider myself, you know, a child of the movement. Um, I saw Roots when it aired on PBS when I was five, I think. <laughs> um, the We watched it together as a family. Um, my mother was a teenager during the civil rights movement. And so really there's living memory of the movement. Um, there's a living memory of U.S. segregation um, in my family. You have to remember that if segregation ended in the uh, official segregation ended um, in the 1960s, that, you know, there are adults alive who were children during segregation. And so in some ways, the kind of living memory of the um, terms of Black oppression in the United States uh, were really active um, in my family, in my household, in my grandparents' household when I was young. Um, and so common knowledge of the terms of our oppression uh, uh, was the way that it was in my house. Um, we have had the freedom to choose how, when, and whether to inform Black children about um, slavery, about segregation, about um, anti-Black violence uh, that has characterized the history of the U.S. And so I think common knowledge about the movement, common knowledge about historical oppression is at a really um, uh, a really all-time, well, I can't say that, a low. Let's say that it's at a low, I think, in terms of students who are kind of walk, young people who are walking around knowing what our history is. And the problem with that is slavery in particular, and I feel like this is the thing that is um, being so aggressively repressed, touches every aspect of our national life, at least, right? Economics, wealth, education, politics, um, after slavery was ended, you know, I had a mentor, a historian, um, Jim Horton, who used to say or repeat the adage that the, the U.S. Um, won the Civil War, but the South um, won the peace. Uh, a lot of activism, white activism, shall we call it, um, went into making sure that the terms and conditions of slavery persisted beyond slavery for Black people. And we see this, for instance, in 100 years of segregation after the end of the Civil War. So um, our movement towards freedom has been hampered at every turn. And I have to say that in this moment, you know, this is kind of this repression of sl the history of slavery, um, African-American history, is a return to the 1950s and not so recent past when African-American history and slave history was um, intentionally and aggressively omitted from textbooks, particularly textbooks in the South in the United States. So in some ways, what we're seeing now is not really surprising. But I have to say that I really don't understand it because I don't understand the motives. I don't understand the outcome. I don't understand for whom this repression goes into place. Right. And when you start to answer those questions, you actually start to see 
the conditions of slavery actually fueling these moves in the first instance. So I don't understand the interest in unknowing, repressing, hiding, striking from the record, the history of slavery, but I only understand it because of the history of slavery, right? This thing that is happening is rooted in long-time traditions of race hatred, oppression of slavery, um, of segregation, of um, the denial of Black humanity. It's interesting that you say that because one of the things that folk like Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis has said, well, you know, kids shouldn't have to go to school and learn things that are going to make them feel bad. And there are others who have supported this repression of Black history because it is a political agenda, not a what actually happened. Can you respond to that? The political agenda is a holdover of slavery, right? So the unilateral repression of the history and identity of Black people was uh, a charge of slavery. Um, So this is an echo of slavery. And so what the move itself tells us is that when we don't know the history, we don't even know when we're repeating the history. Now, uh, one has to wonder whether then there's intention and knowledge to actually continue to reproduce the conditions of slavery in the United States by repressing knowledge about slavery in the United States. And, you know, yes, because a lot of things um, uh, fall out of that, the continued... um, access to voting rights uh, being denied Black people, um, continued um, medical outcomes um, that have Black people suffering uh, in our medical system, um, the continued um, inequality in educational conditions, right? These are just okay if we don't, they're natural, they're your own fault. If we don't know the roots of the structures that have made those things true, that have made those things continue. And so when I think about, you know, this issue of of students not having to go to school to learn things that make them feel bad, I wonder so much just about whose feelings we're protecting, why, and, and what the consequences of that are. I'm not even sure that, you know, that protecting the feelings of students going to school in 2023 has anything to do with learning. Learning some things are hard. Learning some things actually do make us feel bad. We know that learning about um, segregation, learning about anti-Black racism makes Black children feel bad too. But we've also known that if our children don't learn these things, they're in danger in public, right? So, I guess the fundamental thing I'm saying here is that if we don't know the history, we don't understand the structures that we live under and we don't have the power to change them. Now, if we don't care to change them or if we're really interested in maintaining them, that's a separate issue. Um, We can't also structure an educational system to protect the feelings of white people, right? We have to develop a relationship to history that is a relationship to responsibility as opposed to a relationship to our own 
personal feelings at a particular moment. To be citizens, we have to be strong enough to carry the responsibilities of citizenship. And sometimes that means learning things that are difficult. I want to say this too. The history of slavery is not Black history. Black people didn't create the system of slavery in the United States and maintain it for centuries. The history of slavery is actually American history. It is white history. Who benefited from slavery? Who maintained plantations? It was a total and ubiquitous system that kept people who were not chained to a post from walking off the plantation and making themselves free. I do this exercise sometimes with my students when I teach uh, um, 19th century African-American literature, particularly slave narratives. I ask them to say, you're sitting where you are right now. You're a student. You're in your dorm room. You're a slave. Because, you know, some students brought their slaves with them to college, right? Back in the 19th century. Right. Um, there's whole architectures. I went to Princeton. The architecture of the dorms, the oldest dorms at Princeton, are based on this idea that there would be a landowner and a slave living in that room. Okay, so it's even in the architecture, right? It just not just in the books. Um, and I ask them, get yourself free, make yourself free. And we do this thought exercise where, okay, what are you going to do? Are you going to get on train? Are you going to use your ATM card to get twenty dollars? You know, out of the ATM machine. You know how how why is it you don't just free yourself? And one of the things they begin to realize is that every aspect of our society was supportive of, in fact, producing of a slave system. That's UC Santa Barbara English and Black Studies professor Stephanie Batiste. Coming up, an Ohio town's furry problem that's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. Pop superstars are out there changing the money flow in the world. Beyonce's sold-out, record-breaking world tour is being blamed for fueling inflation in Sweden due to a surge in hotel prices. And Taylor Swift's tour could generate more than $4 bucks for the economy in the U.S. 52 dates in 20 major cities. And in the end... Are you ready for it? Taylor Swift's Eras Tour will have generated $4.6 billion in consumer spending. Fortune reports Swifties are spending an average $1,300 on concert tickets. And when you factor in travel, hotels, food, drinks, and merch, it adds up. Nearly every city she's hit has reported tourism spikes, some hitting pre-pandemic levels. Taylor's playing in Pittsburgh, Minneapolis, and Cincinnati through the end of the month. She'll wrap her tour out west in early August. Monica Ricks, CBS News. If you love animals and have a yen for the great outdoors, we know just the place in Minnesota where you can be a farmer for a day. You're doing something different every single day. And there's so much joy and therapy in it. About five miles northeast of Belgrade, you'll find geese, chickens, cats, and much more. Hogs, dogs, a llama. The llama's name is Butter. The lamb he hangs out with is Bumblebee. And like all animals here, they play an important role at Feathered Acres Farm. But you never imagined this place would turn into what it is today. No. Nope, not even a little bit. <laughs> Nolan Zachman's family initially owned this farmstead, but it was his wife Trisha's idea to turn it into a regenerative farm yeah, they... and a hands-on experience for visitors. I started to realize that people really wanted a connection with farmers and 
food. The regenerative part puts an emphasis on soil health. Nolan and Trisha don't use antibiotics or growth hormones with their animals. What they do use is what the land gives and what previous farm families left behind. This is actually still one of the main beams. I mean, it's throughout the whole barn. A couple of years ago, the Zachmans turned the old dairy barn into a place to spend the night. Guests looking for a country getaway can stay inside the O'Halloran house or the Mulleter milk house. Each has been given a family touch. You repurposed all this barn wood. Yes. And it fits perfect. Yeah, it worked great. The beds are close to where an old silo used to be. And if you're here to help with chores, your wake-up call is a rooster. Our animals are smart. They know when people are not the norm around here, so yeah. they come and check you out. You could say the animals are happier than a pig in mud. And as part of the experience, visitors can help feed them. Bumblebee is a two-week-old lamb and one of the many animals here that needs to be fed morning, noon, and night. You can like pick the eggs from the chicken coop and you can go see the pigs and feed them. Finley Johnson and her fellow Girl Scouts made the trip from the cities to spend a night and help with chores. You don't see too many pigs or chickens in Edina, do you? Oh no. They were busy, they weren't on screens, and it was just a great getaway and learning experience. The more animals, the merrier. Of course, some of the chores need to be handled by the Zachmans, like giving the llama a haircut. Yep. Is he pleased with his haircut? Right you know what? He was not pleased when he got it, but after he got it, he realized how awesome it felt, especially right. in this heat. Very handsome. Yep. The goal is to give people a chance to experience what the Zachmans experience every day. The hope for us is just to, you know, keep learning together. It's, it's enjoyable, for sure. That's WCCO-TV's John Lauritsen. But some kinds of animals are making people shudder instead. Elko, Nevada is dealing with an invasion by a crowd of insects covering everything from homes to streets. It is a creepy, crawly, nasty, disturbing sight. It's bugging me. Oh, it's bugging me. Parts of Elko are covered in swarming and migrating Mormon crickets. They're on the roads. You can see that they're moving and crawling and the whole road's crawling and it just makes your skin crawl. It's just so gross. And they cover some homes. When we looked out here, it, the whole wall was just covered. That really, really, really freaked me out. Colette Reynolds has been dealing with them for a few days. It causes depression, anxiety. You feel super violated. You, when you're inside the house, it sounds like it's raining because they just randomly let go of wherever they're hanging onto and drop. These swarms happen a lot, but they get noticed in a populated area, according to Jeff Knight, the Nevada state entomologist. We've moved more and more into the native habitat where these crickets normally occur. He says it's not entirely known why they swarm and migrate, and there are limited options for people to keep them at bay. There is a pesticide route if they want to go that route. There's a route of tolerate it and they probably will move through. There are also cricket fences, which they can't climb. Colette is trying to tolerate for now, hoping they disappear quickly. Some people say they'll move through three or five days, but for some reason they're really sticking around our house. I'm not sure why. We can, of course, get Mormon cricket infestations in Utah. We've had bad swarms before, but right now we're seeing most of these swarms in Nevada, Idaho, and parts of Southeast Oregon. That's KUTV-TV's Lincoln Graves. Finally, in Piqua, Ohio, a furry creature of gargantuan stature has earned the ire of city officials. But WHIO-TV's Kayla McDermott says its owner has draped him in everything from flags to a skeleton to fight back. Yeah, he gets dressed. I mean, he's not even naked. <laughs>
She's talking about this nearly 10-foot-tall werewolf statue named Phil. He stands in front of Mary Simmons' home. He's kind of become our mascot. Recently, the city of Piqua left this door hanger for Simmons. The notification calls the werewolf a seasonal decoration and asks Simmons to please take him down. It, it pisses you off. It's like, really? Since Phil has been labeled seasonal, we decided, you know what, let's make him seasonal for every holiday. He's 4th of July ready, Veterans Day, Flag Day. She now has plans for holidays that are months away. I'm trying to find like a, either a pilgrim outfit or stuffed turkey or something. Mm -hmm. Look like he's eating stuffed turkey. Neighbors who live right across the street have their own opinions on Phil. I think it's cool. It don't, like I said, it just don't bother me. I just think it's what the city is doing is wrong. Can you yeah. tell me what you think of it? I think it's ugly. I think it needs to come down. What is that hanging on him? The, the skeleton, so it's not seasonal. Simmons doesn't care. She said it's her property. If it were out here, I'd get it. But it's over there, out of control. So, I mean, it's my, my property and my thing. If Phil was a danger, then she understands the city's concern. Like, if he was falling apart, his, his head was ready to fall off and hit somebody, I'd take him down. But until then, she says Phil is staying. Um, just let me have my werewolf. That's all I want. I'm not asking for a lot. Just let me have my werewolf. I've been here for hours, and cars keep coming up and down the road, screaming, leave Phil, don't take him down. And Simmons is hoping with all the community support that Phil and her property can be left alone. That's it for the Weekend Roundup. Thanks for listening. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to Weekend Roundup at cbsnews.com. As always, you can find the program online on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. The Weekend Roundup is produced at the CBS News Washington Bureau. Sarah Fishman is the technical supervisor and Alan Peng provides production assistance. Tara Lipinski is the executive producer. Have a great week. I'm Allison Keyes, CBS News. If you like CBS News Roundup, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. And how long have you been the, the producer of this? We've been doing this for two years now. Okay. And and what is it like to attempt to uh, get feedback from me about the podcast? Be honest about how quickly I respond to emails. You actually respond to emails surprisingly fast. Really? I, I think you might be the only person I respond to. <laughs> <laughs> respond to quickly. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. I expected I expected you to lay into me. Well, this was over the strike period. Oh, I had time. Yeah. See, that, that, does, that doesn't count. <laughs> sure, I responded to everything because responding to you, putting reruns up on the podcast, was like a form of employment. Yeah. And I felt like I had something to get up for every yeah. day. So thank you for that. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.